Hello, welcome to another instalment of the This Is Housing podcast, presented by me, Richard Mahal, the host of the podcast. I'm joined today by some of my wonderful colleagues. Say hello, Hello. 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 Everyone sounds very excited to discuss the topic that we are discussing today on this bonus episode, which is the long-awaited decision of the Court of Appeal in the case of Churchill and Merthyr Tidville County Borough Council. So let's get straight into it. Is someone in a position to summarise what this case was all about? Dalger, the floor is yours. Would you be able to, as briefly as possible, uh, summarise what this case was all about? So Mr Churchill bought a property in Merthyr Tidville. Council owned the joining land and he says since about 2016, Japanese knotweed encroached from that land onto his own property, causing damage, his reduction of value and loss of his in-person enjoyment of that property or that land. So Mr Churchill's solicitors sent a letter of claim in October 2020. Council responded to in Jan 21. And they said, well, you should actually use our corporate complaints procedure. And if they he didn't go down that route, issue the claim, they would look to stay it to pause proceedings and they will be seeking their costs of making the applications and all the costs that they incurred. Mr Churchill went ahead and just issued the claim. And then the council, good to their word, issued an application to stay the proceedings. At the first court, the county court, the lower court, the judge found that there's a previous case, there's a, um, a precedent case, a case of Halsey and Milton Keynes, uh, 2004. And he held that in that case, the court said, you can't oblige unwilling parties to refer to their disputes to mediation as it would be it would impose an unacceptable obstruction on their right to access to the court as a result their claim to stay was dismissed and then the council appealed to the court of appeal the court of appeal in this case their main question was whether a court can lawfully order parties who are engaged in court proceedings to engage in a non-court-based dispute resolution process it's very wordy we'll just referred to as ADR in this podcast, it makes it easier. And if they can order a stay to proceedings to engage in ADR, what circumstances it should do so? I think that was what the whole case was about. So it's a really interesting case for both tenants and landlords, because it will kind of set the tone of what steps need to be taken by a tenant or someone making a complaint of disrepair in a property and whether or not a council, housing association or local authority can force mediation or an alternative dispute resolution uh, before a matter goes to court. Thanks, Dolger. That's really interesting. Does anyone else have any comments, thoughts or analysis that they want to share? Daniel, Amandy, this is the first time you're joining us on the podcast. Do you have any thoughts about the judgment? Thank you, Richard. It's nice, nice to be here on, the, on your podcast. Thank you, Richard, uh, for having me on the podcast. You're most welcome. I think there are a number of issues with the Court of Appeal uh, regarding this case. The Court of Appeal, they decided that you can lawfully stay proceedings. However, they didn't lay down fixed principles as to how to determine whether proceedings should be stayed or to order parties to engage in ADR. Daniel, anything to add? It's almost one of these slightly unhelpful Court of Appeal decisions in that the answer is 
it depends on the facts of each case. And when something goes all the way to the Court of Appeal, it'd be very helpful to get more clarity in terms of what that actually means. And this decision, in some respects, is a a continuation of status quo in as far as judges have been able to encourage and and have a a general ability to stay proceedings uh, if they think that ADR is the appropriate route to at least try out. And if the parties can agree to do that, then I've had cases of mine um, stayed for the parties to attempt to agree ADR. And the judge in question has thought it was a good idea to allow that time for the parties to see if, if anything can be agreed out, outside of court. It hasn't worked in that occasion, but, but judges have generally been able to, depending on the facts of the case, give opportunities for ADR. And clearly there's a, a general preference, and I think there has been for some time, that if parties can resolve their matters outside of court, then they should. And if they refuse to do so, they need to give a good reason as to why they're refusing to do so. So I'm not sure this Court of Appeal decision is entirely as helpful as it could be, given that the response is, it depends on the facts of the case. I agree with you, Daniel. Since the decision in Halsey, there's been a real move towards ADR in civil proceedings. And I think Churchill marks a significant development in furthering the trend. Yes, yeah, a a general preference for for ADR, but but equally without a huge amount of steerage as to when the court will force the issue and when when they won't. And to say that it it will depend on the facts of the case is is almost sort of a simply a continuation of the status quo, albeit a continuation of the, the developing trend that prefers ADR as far as possible. So, Manjinda, what do you think the implications or some of the potential implications of this judgment are for for our clients, for our clients who come to us who are experiencing disrepair? I think this judgment will not have a major impact on the disrepair clients that we currently assist with. We do recommend ADR in any event, and it's part of our pre-action protocol letter when we serve that to the landlords. I think the mistake landlords are going to make is this judgment will give them the right to make an application to stay the claim in order for a tenant to comply with their in-house complaints procedure. And I think that's the mistake most of the landlords are going to make. But then it's up to us as a solicitors and lawyers to to establish why ADR may be refused. Majority of our clients prefer to resolve the, the dispute without going to court. A majority of our cases do settle before issuing. It's only in a small amount of cases, from my experience, that I've dealt with with disrepair cases where we've had to issue is because the landlords refuse to carry out the remedial work and is an urgent case for the client. I've not recently had any stay applications prior to this case, but I am, I do believe that there will be a lot more cases or even a lot of landlords asking our clients to follow their internal complaints policy before issuing. But I think, I think the landlords need to realise that their complaints policy is, is not a resolution. And I think the, the, all the, any policies that the landlords have need to be efficient and effective to the case. So if it's a disrepair matter, the complaints policy needs to be reasonable. And I'm not sure most of the, especially social landlords, local authorities, their, their policies are 
effective. What do you guys think? Manjinda, I, I agree with your point of view. Um, I think if there are ADR procedures in place, such complaint policies um, in place, these should be thoroughly considered by the councils. Uh, and if appropriate, these avenue, avenues should be exhausted before proceedings are issued. Anybody else? Uh, what do you think of it? Uh, yeah, thank you, Amandeep. Um, yeah, definitely. ADR can be a, a useful resource. I mean, I've had it for one of my cases recently as well, where um, parties do get together and they're trying to find a, a suitable outcome which prevents them going to trial. And I mean, it, it can be a good thing, but um, it's it's important to note that with ADR or any form of mediation, it can be quite stressful. Um, it can be compact and quite rushed because um, they can try to compress it in one day or over a, a short number of days. And you're trying to reach a resolution as quickly as possible. So for some matters, yes, um, it may be suitable, but um, in, in others, it might not be, especially if the, the people that we represent or any any party is is got some sort of uh, mental health condition, is vulnerable, it might not be suitable for them. It might exacerbate their, their existing conditions as well. So, Vase, a case you was referring to, I'm assuming it was me- a mediation you, you attended with your client. Yes, it was mediation um, that we attended. Okay, so... Mediation, as you know, is is a form of ADR. I have found attending mediation with clients who who have mental health condition or anxiety, depression, it has a it has a major impact on on their health, and especially when you're cramming in the whole case into one day and trying to settle. And I find that a lot of pressure is put on the clients to try and settle. I mean, that's how they feel. Did you find that having the same impact on your client during mediation? Yes, um, quite a lot, actually. Um, so with, with with my client being in mediation, she she wasn't even too keen on it. I, th- I think there was a lot of information that was um, being put to her and it brought back a lot of unpleasant memories. And yes, she engaged as much as she could. But again, she, she wanted more time to deliberate over any offers that were being made and any proposals being put forward to to bring the matter to, to a close. And Sometimes, again, because um, mediation can be so time restrictive, it, it just didn't it didn't help her her position at all, um, and unfortunately, not not a great success there. So, Amandy, uh, how important is ADR moving forward following this this decision of the Court of Appeal? There is clearly a pressure to engage in some form of ADR at the earliest appropriate opportunity. And it is important. However, it needs to be on an equal footing and it has to be a balancing exercise. Yeah, I, I, I think the first issue is the Court of Appeal case. I know there's the Bar Council guidelines, but when I was saying earlier about it's almost like a continuation of the status quo, do you think that's, do you think, is that something that you agree with as well? Or do you think that's, that's not quite, because courts have yeah, already been able to encourage ADR. And all the Court of Appeal has said is, yeah, okay, we can force it, but it depends on the facts of the case. But it's always depended exactly. on the facts yeah, of the I case. agree. And, you know, what council really has an internal complaints procedure that's really good enough? Is it fast enough? Does it actually resolve the issues? And on the issue of damages, my local 
council they've just introduced sort of a new sort of standard sort of payment scheme so if you've got this type of disrepair then they'll give you sort of 100 pounds or something and and that's that's all part of their internal process but it's just a way of essentially fobbing tenants off a lot of these internal processes are essentially a way of councils trying to fob off tenants with a lower amount of compensation than, for example, they might be able to obtain through the courts. The complaints procedure, do we know of any complaints procedures that actually work effectively and efficiently and quickly enough to resolve things in a manner that, that's appropriate? Do any local authorities really have a complaints procedure that's fit for purpose that would allow allow them to say, we're going to rely on this entirely now, and what they will try and do and what they have tried to do in the past sometimes is essentially exclude the tenant's ability to reach for courts to resolve their matters. And I was assisting uh, one of our other colleagues with one of his cases uh, a few months ago, and that's exactly what the council was trying to do. They were trying to say, and this is this well before this judgment, um, they were trying to say, no, you can't issue because you need to go through our internal complaints procedure first. We have this process. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not fit for purpose, but we have this process and you have to follow it. You can't just go off to court. So they were trying to limit and exclude the, the general jurisdiction of the courts and the ability of the tenants to access that by pigeonholing the tenant into only following the complaints procedure. And I mean that's that's not that's not right. It it limits the tenant in every in every way. If the council had a perfect complaints procedure which was efficient and effective, then maybe it would be a different situation. But I don't know how many councils actually have that type of internal complaints procedure that is efficient and effective. And usually councils um, they only start taking action, they only start taking notice once you send letters to their legal departments by way of court proceedings um it's only at that point that the councils actually start rolling into action um and it's understandable from the council's point of view because they're so overworked and they're so underfunded and they've got so many duties that are placed on them that of course they try and gatekeep the problems that they're dealing with of course they try and delay things you know if they're not actually being forced to deal with it they've got so much on it's understandable the way they behave but equally for our tenants for their tenants to enforce their rights that whole context requires the involvement of the court often and i think that's what we see in the cases that we take on and it's what we see in terms of how the council responds to tenants or to us no i totally agree with you daniel i was exactly my thoughts and I think the problem with the in-house complaints procedures is exactly what you said, Daniel, is most of the policies that I've seen from council and social landlords are not going to be effective. But we also need to understand this judgment, which landlords might refer to in their responses, is is all about post-issue. It's nothing about pre-issue. So when we send a pre-action protocol letter for disrepair, for instance, this case really wouldn't have a lot of impact on on disrepair. So I'm not quite sure what the real point of this case was 
that's just my opinion. And I believe the council did not even receive, obtain costs. So it's a really expensive way just to affirm that the courts have the right to, you know, have, have the discretion. Which yeah. is just exactly, the way it's exactly. been. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure. But I'm, I believe, I mean, my thoughts are maybe the council of social landlords might start now amending their in-house complaints procedure to address some of the issues that were raised in this case. So their complaints, policies, procedures are a little bit more effective. I'm not quite sure. So that'd be quite interesting to see. And I also think the landlords, they shouldn't make a mistake of assuming a complaints response is the same as a resolution of of a, you know, of a potential claim. Because I understand the ombudsman, the housing ombudsman, has directed social landlords to, to treat a letter of claim, a pre-action protocol as a complaint under the complaint scheme, as well as engaging with the pre-action protocol. So, and I, from experience, I find council social landlords assume when we send a pre-action protocol and they, you know, demand our clients and tenants to follow the, the in-house complaints procedure, they think that's a resolution. My concern is, what if these tenants are not legally represented? What if they've not received legal advice and they attend this some type of ADR or a meeting, a mediation? What impact do you think that would have? It may be the case that tenants may not understand the holistic approach of what ADR is, what they're entering into. And as a result of that, they may not have full comprehensive advice available to them. So they don't essentially know what their rights are, what they um, should and should not essentially do. That's placing them at a disadvantage and therefore could be very prejudicial to them. Mm. And and also, I think we should, you know, we should also let our audience know that if they are suffering from disrepair and their landlords or social landlord or council have asked you to attend mediation or attend their offices to try to negotiate, it is important or is advisable that you do obtain some legal advice because, you know, in circumstances that, you know, I've, I've encountered clients in situations where the local authorities offered them some, you know, some form of compensation damages, which doesn't really reflect what the, the client went through or the disrepair they suffered. But for someone in a, in, in a position where they may not be able to afford their, their rent or, you know, cost of living has impacted their financial position, £500 is, is, a, is a lot of money. But essentially, as lawyers, we might advise that this case might be worth a lot more. So what do you think? Because as, as we all know, legal aid you know, has, been, has impacted people obtaining legal advice in disrepair cases. What do you think? That's literally one of the issues that we've always faced. Legal aid has been cut. So previously when they might have got assistance to, you know, to rock up to a local authority, a social landlord or whatever, to get support, they won't have that same access now. So they kind of, it's a lot more limited because of the decline in legal aid uh, for those sort of matters. I think that's a very, very valid point. Going back to what Daniel said, really, any sort of form of ADR would be great for them because it would delay matters. But as the corporate people said, it's not going to be reasonable for you to keep on delaying the matters. It's all going to depend on the level of disrepair and the, the policies that social landlords have. Imagine he said the um, councils, social landlords might update their policies. I think a lot of people would welcome it. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's so out of date. I think all these things that have just been overlooked and just been stagnant, that when they go to these sort of ADR sort of meetings, whatever they might be, they're kind of at a loss. A lot of things can be told to them and they wouldn't know any better. 
And without that sort of legal representation, without the support of legal aid, you're just, it's going to be really hard for them. So engaging in ADR, while it sounds brilliant, people are kind of reliant on what they're being told and they can be led astray. You know, I mean, no disrespect to any like council officers or whatever, but or social housing officers or whatever, but they can be led astray because they want to, they want to reach an outcome that's beneficial for them as much as they may want it for, the, for their tenant. So it's, um, in real practice, would it, if someone's asked, I suppose if it's an open question, if, if someone is told that you have to engage in ADR, do you think they'd have to do it just to comply with, or not to fall foul of this, this new judgment? Dalj, I would go even further and say that you know, with ADR and with, without legal representation, tenants are forced to accept deals or agreements which they don't understand. So it's unfair on tenants. Also, I think the question is, would legal aid be available if a tenant has, you know, approaches us or approaches a, a, a housing solicitor about attending a form of ADR? Is legal aid going to be available to attend this ADR mediation pre-issue? I think so long as the disrepairs sufficiently serious to fall in scope for the legal help scheme then yes I think so. Further to what you said Daniel I do think also another consideration would be if a form of ADR or media for example mediation finding um, appropriate experts to actually agree to legal aid rates to assist with the cases it may be difficult it may be easy it's just finding someone who's actually agreeable to these rates. That's a, that's a really good point as well, Rita. I mean, we've struggled to find mediators who are willing to accept legal aid rates, which haven't increased for God knows how many years. But that's another topic for another day, I believe. Well, that was a really interesting discussion. And I think we, we all consider it and we would advise any prospective clients and tenants to seriously consider engaging in ADR, particularly at an early stage of any disrepair complaint or dispute. Well, it will certainly uh, anyway be interesting to see after this judgment whether social landlords and how many social landlords are make applications to stay any proceedings um, in order for there to be some ADR process for the parties to to undertake. I suppose we'll just have to we'll just have to wait and see. Anyway, it's been, as I say, a very interesting episode and until the next one, this has been the Duncan Lewis Housing Law Podcast presented to you by Rich Mahal and the team of expert solicitors in the housing department at Duncan Lewis. Bye-bye.